Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And with us again today is friend of the show, Alexis. How are you tonight, Alexis? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. I think we're in a milestone, Karen. We sure are. We're recording our 75th episode. You know, we've been podcasting together for nearly seven years. We've talked about sex bots, satanic feminism, Hillary Clinton, and there's a big comma between those two. We've talked about pregnancy discrimination. We've talked about abortion. We've talked about the DSM and sex in a variety of ways. We've talked about the evangelical takeover of politics. We've interviewed local New York City politicians. We've interrogated what whiteness even is. We've talked about Q and more. So we just want to thank you to our listeners, to our guests in particular, and to our patrons for your support. So if you have been listening for a while and you have thoughts or things you'd like to hear more of, please do feel free to send us messages via our Patreon so we can get messages from our patrons. And also, just kind of a a heads up, we're going to be talking about harassment, possible assault, and we're recording this right after the uh, Depp Heard verdict has come out, which, you know, is somewhat disturbing for the chilling effect that it'll likely have, if not already has, according to some media sources, uh, on people reporting their partner's abuse of them. And we also see that conservatives are celebrating this as the end of the Me Too movement. So really rough day for uh, that kind of thing. But if talking about harassment or assault or abuse is not your thing, that's your trigger warning that this is somehow relevant to our discussion topic of evangelical politicians and blaming women for their own harassment and abuse. So what are we talking about today? Talking about the Pence Rule. What is the Pence Rule? The Pence Rule uh, was popularized as a rule that our uh, former Vice President Mike Pence had, which was to never uh, dine or have drinks alone with a woman other than his wife and to never attend a party with alcohol without his wife. Alexis, I think you said you wanted to share some stuff about how this comes up in the legal profession. Yeah, I mean, so just to give context, my name is Alexis Sotarakis. I am a attorney who's been in private practice for longer than I care to admit, 15 plus years. And I think that especially for female attorneys, this issue of socialization and how you socialize within the professional context comes up a lot. So I was very interested to, to have this conversation with you. So they, first of all, thank you guys for inviting me and congratulations on your uh, anniversary. It's awesome that you guys have been doing this for so long because, you know, you've been putting out some great stuff. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that it's really hard in a professional context to navigate issues of comfort and sexuality sometimes, especially when there is a sense of having to interact in what I'll call like quasi quasi social environments, right? So, you know, in the legal profession, networking and sort of getting to know your colleagues, especially as a very junior person is a really important part of the job. And a lot of times assignments will go to people who fit with the culture or um, especially in the context of large law firms. And as women, you know, how do you have that interaction take place? And, you know, I have, I have lots and lots of thoughts about it. So I don't know where we want to start. I also think there's a couple of different intersections here to like just to be mindful of. And I think like the, the one that immediately pops into my head is age um, and the way that I interacted with male coworkers, especially male coworkers who are older than me, was very mm-hmm. different um, at the beginning of my career than it is now. And I think it's a little bit easier, but that just creates another obstacle for women in the workplace that men don't have. I don't think that younger men necessarily feel that that tension. 
Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's lots of other ways that this gets complicated. Yeah, well, you know, I remember early in my career, a couple of things that I think are relevant. One is I've had female partners comment to me that men would almost, young associates would almost aggressively be like, mentor me. Like, you're here to mentor. You know what I mean? Like, that there was an expectation that that was something that they didn't need to cultivate and that they were entitled to. Uh, where I think women, for a lot of different reasons, approach it very differently. And at that point in my career, when I was a very, very young junior single associate, there are a lot of different interactions and stories that I think are instructive. And one thing that I, piece of advice that I found very helpful personally was the movie producer, Linda Opes, recommended that as a young woman, you have to figure out the non-sexual relationship dynamic that makes the guy feel comfortable. And again, I think it's very much centered in like thinking about guys' comfort back then too, you know, in a way that I think now that I'm older, it's like both person's comfort, but like, am I your little sister or am I your mother or am I your sibling? Like, what's the dynamic and how do you sort of bring yourself out of a non-sexual space? And I never really thought about it very hard, but when I was very, very young, so I'm Catholic and uh, I was, I shouldn't say that I'm Episcopalian now, but I was raised Catholic. And I remember in the Catholic faith tradition, when you take your confirmation, you like study saints. And at a very young age, I remember learning about Rose of Lima and her whole deal was like, she would like rub stuff on her face to make her beauty diminish and like really made herself foul because that's how she protected herself. You know, she didn't want the harassment and the gaze of men. So she made herself sort of hideous. And while I don't think I did that, I didn't, really sexualize myself or present myself in a very sexualized way as a young attorney. And some of my colleagues took the exact opposite approach. And especially now, I think there are some very talented young attorneys of color I know that almost like take a different tact where it's like, you're going to sexualize me no matter what I do. So I'm going to bring it and I'm going to be fierce. And, and I think that every woman professional, and I think this happens, that's something over time in different professions, like you got to get comfortable in your own skin. And whatever your presentation is, you have to kind of figure out how to deal with it. Because I got involved in a uh, little bit of a Twitter back and forth with a bunch of, with several young w professional women who present very sexualized, in a very sexualized way. And they kind of said like, oh, you know, men, men just want to have sex with us and, you know, they don't listen to us. And even if I say I'm not interested, they keep pursuing me. And I'm like, yeah, that's a problem, you know, and how you deal with it. And I think everybody deals with it differently in that, you know, at a certain point, if someone doesn't respect you for whatever reason, you're not going to have a good professional relationship. And maybe that might be harder for some people to find people that respect them. But I think that's also something to think about, like in the context of the law firm, you know, if you can't find a good mentor, if you can't find someone to vibe with, well, maybe this isn't the right place for you. That makes me think of so many different things. Like there's so many different directions to go in this. And I'm. Yeah, no, I think it's, there, there's a lot. I was thinking of the way that I was kind of socialized into what business culture was in a very kind of aesthetic forward atmosphere, which was college forensics competing in speech. and. While talent was, of course, important, presenting yourself in a perfectly pressed suit and having your hair done and possibly makeup, depending, was all kind of part of your score and the way that you pre presented yourself. And not every industry is like that. And I'm thinking back now, we're talking about the history of the podcast, like going way back when we had Iris on to talk about women in video games and engineering and kind of like the expectations in different kinds of engineering mm -hmm. and in like you know, if you're working for a video game company is going to be completely different from a law firm. And depending on what kind of law it is, that's just kind of what I'm thinking about. And like whether or not the way that you kind of present yourself in like kind of like a hyper feminine way or kind of like a dress down way is going to have like a different context where you are. And like there's this book that came out a couple of years ago about 
women running for office. It was an extremely one-on-one book, but there was a whole chapter called What Do I Wear? And it suggested Mm -hmm. making a uniform for yourself and like kind of just sticking with that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And I mean, when, so just to put in context, I was a young associate in the early 2000s and I think a lot has changed in the last 20 years, but to give you a sense of some of the sort of, you know, situations in the legal context. First of all, in big law, New York, there was a sense that certain firms had quote unquote stables, meaning specifically they hired hot young women. So it was like, hey, we have our class of male attorneys and then we have the hot young women and that the most important qualification is being hot. And my whole thing was like, I don't have to be hot because I'm good. I'm a good attorney. And you're not going to work with me because of eye candy. Now, there are some women who try really, really hard to do both. I'm like super smart, super competent and super hot. And I'm, I have it all where I feel like for me, in some ways, because it's not like I wanted to be unattractive, but I just don't think a lot of my, my you know, I'm a, I'm a plus size. So I think a lot of men didn't sexualize me. It, it made things easier. And I think that I didn't feel like when my colleagues were talking to me, they just, you know, wanted to have a physical relationship with me. And because that tension wasn't there, I think I was able to have some conversations that maybe some of the other, my other female colleagues couldn't. So I remember there was one practice group and they were bemoaning the fact that they could no longer go to the strip clubs, that they used to go to strip clubs. and. The sense was there was a discussion of whether or not the women should be invited to the strip clubs. And my point was, if you're the kind of practice that socializes in the strip club and you want women as part of your team, you know, to invite the men and not invite the women is not okay. Like to exclude the women from that socialization. And I've actually had a client ask to meet me in a strip club recently. (laughs) And I was like, dude, why? Did you, for your next appointment, schedule your meeting for an all-male strip club? You know, I actually, uh, surprise, surprise, did not end up doing business with this person. But it was literally like, we're going to be here. Can you meet us? I want this guy to meet you because, you know, I think you guys would be a great fit. I'm like, okay. It's so weird because then that also assumes them all the male attorneys are straight. And also, I think it'd be really interesting because in terms of, The legal profession, LGBTQ attorneys have a totally different experience and like white homosexual male attorneys have a totally different experience because especially in the law firm culture, so much of it is about like fit, like are you one of us and what that means. And and again, this goes back beyond gender, like just with religion and other things, like for years and years, there were a lot of law firms that wouldn't hire Jewish attorneys, right? So, you know, those dynamics all exist. And, you know, it's this issue of like, as a woman, how do you gain entrance? And, you know, circling back to the Pence rule, right? We've been talking about this for a while, and I've given a lot of thought, and I'm actually kind of coming down in Mike Pence's defense a little bit here, in that it's like, if this is what he needs to feel comfortable, and this is what he wants to do, as long as he's not excluding women, right? So it's like, it's problematic if he does all his business with men one-on-one, but then just excludes women. I think we have a quote from Sheryl Sandberg about that, Karen. So there's just so much to discuss in what we just talked about. Sheryl Sandberg's take on this in an article that I had read was basically the only fair implementation of the Pence rule is to not have private meals or alcohol parties with anybody. So if you only do certain things with your male employees or colleagues... There's no way to get that benefit for female colleagues. And so the only fair way to do it or gender fair way to do it is to stop doing it with anybody of any gender Mm -hmm. or only do group dinners. I mean, there's all of that. But then also to bring it back to Elizabeth's comment about the assumption that all of your male colleagues are gay or heterosexual. Sorry, I went with my tendencies (laughs) with assumptions where I assume everyone's gay. But um, 
<laughs> Assuming that all your coworkers, colleagues, mentees are heterosexual, if, if you're going to the strip club with them, or at the very least in, enjoy the environment of the strip club, but also the assumption that, that they're heterosexual men in particular, I mean, it just... So can two gay colleagues have dinner alone without their spouses? So two gay men, two gay women. I don't think Mike Pence cares, though. Well, I don't think Mike Pence is having dinner with gay people. Right. But I think it's the temptation, right? Because it was like, oh, I will be, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that I think the other issue of the Pence role is the idea that I can't be trusted, right? Like, I need my wife there to make sure I behave. This is my fundamental question about the Pence rule. Is it I need the supervision because I can't stop myself from doing it? Or is it because he believes that women would make up allegations? And depending on which one it is, I'm equally outraged, but for different nuances. I feel like there's an editorial in the New York Times today by some guy from the National Review. And he was talking about the direction that the so-called anti-woke right is going in and how there are really two different kind of forces. There's kind of traditional Christian conservatism, like theocracy. And then there's also kind of like what we would say is like Raytheist kind of like intellectual dark web misogyny and transphobia. Mm. And how sometimes they want the same thing for different reasons. And that kind of makes me think of the Pence rule. You know, like, because there's kind of like this religious idea that, you know, people are inherently like sinful and lustful and like men can't control themselves. And then there's also this additional misogynist idea that's really taken hold of in secular culture that women are liars. Right. And I honestly think if you ask Mike Pence, he would probably say both, but I'm not sure. And, you know, it's there are I'm I'm going to say it's like all Abrahamic religions like have this kind of thing. Like there there are Jewish traditions and Muslim traditions that have this idea like you're not supposed to be alone with someone of the opposite sex. Karen here. We're interrupting this episode with an addendum. Elizabeth here used the term opposite sex and we want to acknowledge that there are other terms for this that might be more accurate such as other genders. This started a conversation that we wanted to explore more, and we'll probably have this and release this as an episode for patrons or maybe even in the regular feed. This and other terms are used in the rest of the episode in various ways. You know, even to the extent where, like, if you are, it's assumed that you did have sex, you know? It's just like... That's it. You know, we can't believe either one of you because you both have reason to lie. You know, I was thinking about that concept also in relation to this. And I'm also thinking about it in like a different context, which I might want to save for the end. But just because a lot of the times the way that we talk about the Pence rule is in terms of like women in the workplace and like how this is a barrier to getting ahead if you can't socialize with your boss. And that's like, I think, a very... A simple way of seeing it. And that's why the Sheryl Sandberg solution is kind of like so simple. It doesn't get into either the implications of people, especially men not having sexual control, or the misogynist implications that all women are liars. There's like additional layers on top of like, oh, I can't get a promotion. And, and how that contributes to like our patriarchal culture. And then on top of that, I'm thinking about other situations where it's not necessarily people being equal because they say all work for the same law firm or something like that. I'm thinking about like, so like, Karen, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm sorry. But just as an academic, right? Does it make sense, say, for a professor to have a rule that during office hours, the door stays open, like no matter what, that you don't have a private conversation with the student? And is that different? And if so, like how? I don't know that I'm qualified to answer this question. You know, I'm a grad student adjunct, not a professor. Right, I know. And so my my experience with office hours is limited and frequently now has been remote. So I don't know exactly about having open door office hours versus refusing to get a meal with a colleague. But, Mm -hmm. you know... Having an open door policy has so many reasons beyond just gendered issues that I 
I don't see it as an app comparison with the Pence rule in particular. I do think that some students might want privacy while talking to their professor during office hours. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that those policies do limit that for students. I do think it is somewhat different in the kind of caregiving role of professorship. And it's a different kind of professionalism Mm -hmm. than what you would see from a politician who would never get dinner with a female staffer or something like that. And even Billy Graham agreed to have dinner alone with Hillary Clinton when she invited him. Billy Graham was flexible on this rule. I don't know how flexible Mike Pence is on this rule, to be quite honest. It's a very ridiculous rule that treats harassment like alcoholism or other forms of addiction. You know, it just really reminds me of that kind of logic of, well, I'm not an alcoholic if I never drink alone. I'm not an alcoholic if I only drink beer and never liquor. I'm not an alcoholic if I only do this, you know, or you are an alcoholic if you do this. You are an alcoholic if you, you know, drink more than two shots at the bar. You know, this kind of weird black and white kind of like just making weird rules so you don't have to actually look at what's going on. I think that's part of it. But, you know, in terms of like going back to the Pence rule, right? At a certain point, rather than the Pence rule, let's go to the professor, the, the Karen, uh, the example you brought up. Like, if there was a teacher who's like, yeah, I can't provide that role to women because I'm uncomfortable with women, I think that would be disqualifying on some level, right? Like, if you, because of your personal beliefs, can't do your job in that way, and right, and that's like maybe a requirement of the job, you know, what are the sort of ramifications to that? Because the thing that was also made me think is I was talking to a Muslim friend who said, yeah, I have a pen's role. Like, I would never take a meeting or be alone with a man. And, you know, she and I go out for coffee all the time. And is the sense of us networking together as women because we're not white, male, cisgender, heterosexual, you know what I mean? Is it different, you know, than this, than the assumption of a guy like Pence, where I think part of the issue with the Pence rule is like perception, like I'm the guy with the power and I'm only going to network with people like me or people I feel comfortable with. Yeah, there's like big pence power there but there's all little kinds of power that people have right i think you know to answer your hypothetical of is women networking when one of them has a rule to not do the same with men the same is the pence rule is like asking are women in our society the same as men in our society? The answer is obviously not. Like, plainly on its face, it's a very different thing. So in terms of turnaround, and if you orient the the rule in the opposite direction, no, it's not the same at all, because men and women are different, because there are different statistics, at least in terms of social status and class and threats of violence from one another. So... I'm not talking about physiologically uh, or aptitude uh, here, but in terms of social class, like woman as a social class is very different than man as a social class. And so having a rule that excludes men versus a rule that excludes women are just very, very different. They're different rules that come to different effect. So I would say really confidently, that there that I have no moral issue with refusing to take networking meetings with men in the same way I do with the Pence rule. Yeah, I agree with Karen. It's completely different because it's a different context. Right. But that brings up the follow-up question, which is, is it possible to advance your career if you exclude all networking with men? Depends what your career is. Does it? I think so. I think if you're in a career that's more female dominated, it might be it might be possible. Well, and also I think 
the other thing going back to my career experience was the idea that women were supposed to network with women. Like I remember I went to a networking meeting um, where one of the, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a partner, but one of the participants at the meeting was like, take all your female clients to the vagina monologue. (laughs) And this is a big corporate firm. And I was like, um, first of all, no, but also the other thing is that in the context of my career, a conversation of how do I interact with men in my field in a productive way to get me business? Because uh, again, there was a Twitter discourse about women sort of wanting to take meetings with men you know, sort of approaching men for networking and then have that be construed as you want to be with me, that, you know, this is all a pretext for not your stated career purpose, but really this is about you wanting to date me. And I remember there was a guy from my high school and we had crossed paths maybe six or seven years after high school. And in the high school social social hierarchy, he was kind of out of my league. But I had a legitimate reason for for approaching him from business perspective. And he totally thought it was a date. I was like, dude, it's not a date. It never was going to, you know what I mean? And like how you get past that perception. And I remember when I was in college, I had approached a movie producer and we had exchanged some emails back and forth. And I'm like, okay, so when you're in town, we'll get a drink. And he called me on the phone and we had been discoursing over email. And he's like, wait, you're a woman? And because my first name's Alexis, he misidentified me and he freaked out and was like, well, can I bring my girlfriends? And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't care. (laughs) You know, and, and, you know, in some ways to say to women, okay, you only have to operate in certain spheres is, is professionally very limiting because of the society we live in. Right. Um, But again, if that's the spheres you want to build your career on like if if, I think especially in 2022 if there was like a female who's like hey I only want to represent women I think you could do it yeah and I think unfortunately while this was not the intended topic of this podcast it kind of goes back to like it's a huge meme right now about like straight men and women can't be friends and I think people who believe that for some reason, carry over into the business world. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you have like an inherently misogynist point of view. Um, you, you, if you couldn't see women as your as your equals in a in a platonic friendship, you wouldn't be able to see them as equals in your career. And so, you would kind of misinterpret business for sex because that's what women are for. But I think a lot of people have problems with intimacy, right? Like, how does it spill over? Like, how do you have those into, you know what I mean? I think there's a lot of issues. I think because they don't have boundaries and they, they're misogynists. What are you going to say, Karen? You look like you're bursting to say something. Are you? So, no? No, I'm really enjoying this line of discussion and I don't want to interrupt it, but there was a point that came up and I want to touch back on the interpersonal boundaries and, and inherent misogyny in a lack of belief that you can have relationships with uh, between heterosexual men and women that aren't inherently sexual but I do want to come back and say you know you can be a female lawyer who only represents uh, women clients but could you never be alone in a room with only female judges could you only ever could you refuse to ever be alone in a room with other female lawyers. I mean, is it possible to have a career where you never have to be in a room with a closed door at a meal with men? Is it possible to advance your career that way? I see what you're saying. So probably not. Yeah. I think that was your point, right? Yeah. My my point is when all of the leadership is male, you can't actually turn it around. Right. And that's, that's the difference between Mike Pence being like vice president of the United States and then just an individual private citizen having a certain rule because of their religious beliefs. Like, that's why they're two completely different things, I would say. 
but yeah, no, I do think it's, 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 it's going back to this, you know, misogynist idea that women exist for sex and for having babies and for being in the home. So it doesn't matter if we make the workplace difficult for them. And if they're there, they're not there for business. They're there to get dates. And like, if that's your view of who women are and what they're for, then that's how you're going to treat them. Even if it doesn't even make sense for your own career, because you're all, you're, you start out with like a fundamentally false and bigoted belief. And then, you know, the foundation is shitty. So you can't build anything good on top of it. Well, this is what makes it such a double win for the far right of the evangelicals to have Mike Pence have this rule. Because if you're only allowed to do things with your wife, if they involve other women, then you need a housewife. And how are you going to get a housewife if all these women have careers? So the double win is it keeps women out of the workforce. They don't want women in the workforce. They don't want women to advance. And also they get to have the religious fundamentalist reason for not spending time with women colleagues at dinner in work-related arenas. So it's the double win of misogyny there. So there's that. But I do really want to come back to talking about what you brought up alexis about like is he just going to assault women if his wife isn't around and it's private and is she there to rein him in or men seeing women as only for sex that makes them think that they can't be in a room with women without it being somehow sexual or in any sort of private communication with women that is anything but sexual you know and i think that those two kind of concepts also are two horrible tastes that taste horrible together, you know? And I'm in a very male dominated area of the law. And, you know, very early on, I had a wonderful mentor and she taught me like, you have to, like, if you're going to do what you're going to do, which was, you know, the career path that I had chosen, you have to be comfortable interacting with men. And she tells, she was actually told a couple stories, and this is, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, where she would go on social outings, uh, barbecues and such, dinner parties with her male colleagues, and would get a lot of hate from the wives, because she would be able to interact with the husbands and comfortable with the husbands. And yet the wives were very... um, toxic about the whole situation right um so i think these these dynamics can get so fraught and in terms of what you brought up karen about the idea of the reason why we have the pence rule is there might be out you know false allegations it's like okay guys get used to it you're not 100 percent comfortable being in a room with a woman How many women for how many years have not been 100% comfortable being in a room with a man? Like, you know, at a certain point, like, we're here, get used to it, deal, you know? And I think that's the other thing, the fragility of a Mike Pence and the need for the Pence rule in either way, right? Like the, the idea that, you know these allegations are so scary or, you know, you're going to ruin my reputation and I'm the victim somehow. Um, you know, and I've had a lot of conversations in the last couple of years about the fact that, you know, you talk about men's reputations getting quote unquote ruined, right. But the thousands of women who never even pursued careers because of stuff they experienced and harassment they experienced. And, the story that sticks with me about that was my mom. Um, she was a math major at uh, SUNY Cortland in the uh, late 60s. And it was very cold there and they had blizzards. And she showed up to an exam in pants and not a skirt. And the professor failed her. Because she wasn't complying with the dress code. And her point was, it's not applicable in exams. Like, we're not in a class like and and she didn't fight it she just dropped out of the program you know and how many thousands of women 
are not going to pursue politics or not going to pursue their career because they didn't have that mentor or they didn't have that meeting or they didn't have that like person to say, hey, look, you're doing a good job. Keep going. That's exactly what I was thinking myself. Examples, you know, we have the kind of like great men theory of science that is there's one genius who moves science forward and they must be protected at all costs. And you see that right now with Sabatini. And I believe he was just recently brought on by NYU School of Medicine after being removed for, I, I you know, I'm remembering this off the top of my head, which means I don't remember it. Uh, but for something that he should not have been allowed to continue to hold his office for. Um, and you see... I don't know what percentage of these people are bots or dummy accounts from PR firms, but you see dozens of comments about how, oh, guess we shouldn't bother curing cancer because some ladies felt a little uncomfortable. And it's like, no, actually, there are huge teams doing this work. Sabatini is not doing it through his pure personal genius. It's not like removing him or not hiring him when you know he's a legal liability, whatever. It's not like that's going to be the thing that stops us from finding treatments or novel preventative measures for, for a variety of cancers. Also, it just kind of shows how ignorant people are around what they mean when they say cure cancer. But anyway. Yeah, but that's also colonialist thinking, right? Like it's the same like great man, I can do it, you know, and again, this white male fragility of, you know, I need protection, right? Because I'm so great. And uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't get through the podcast without bringing it up. Tonight is the night of the gubernatorial debate. But, you know, uh, one of the candidates, my least favorite. Self-care not to watch it. (laughs) My 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 least one my least favorite uh, congressman Tom Swazi uh, said that the best way is he really your least favorite? What about like Marjorie Taylor Greene? No, no, no. Seriously, he's no, he's my least favorite because the thing is, she's just a wackadoodle. He the hypocrisy. It's like you want to solve a problem. She's a wackadoodle Catholic, in power. You you Catholic guy like. Stand up for the death penalty. But Tom Swazi said, if you want to protect reproductive rights, you need to elect me. No. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. He said, if you need, oh, hold on. Cause it, it was just like, I'm so, I, 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 you know, I don't want to malign him unfairly. But yes, he's our official mascot in that, like, our mascot is like him being punched. He's a punching bag, our official <laughs> punching bag. I was just going to say that, like, Karen and I were talking earlier about, like, parasocial relationships versus real relationships. And Alexis, if I didn't know you as a friend, I would be just endlessly entertained by your hate for Tom Suwazi. But as a person. Oh, and, like, and I've met him many, many, many times. He like, he, like, runs away. I first went to a fundraiser for him in high school. In high school. Okay, and I quote, the best way to keep abortion legal in NYS is to make sure we nominate a Democrat who can beat the Republicans in November. That's me. Sorry. But you know what I mean? Like with the sense that like, like I'm the one who can do it. And I think that that also going back to the Pence rule is this idea of centering power and influence in one individual and sort of uplifting it in that, you know, I'd be interested, you know, because Elizabeth, you brought up the fact that he's the fact that he's vice president is relevant, right? Mm-hmm. But like, I as so. vice president, how often do people take one on one meetings generally? And like, what does that look like? Like, for instance, diplomatic, meetings, right? Like, like, where and 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 at a certain point, does it not count if he's on the phone with his counterpart? Well, but like at a certain point, if he's that uncomfortable with women, doesn't that impede his ability to do his job effectively? Right? Like if you're president, like should, let's just say, let's him. for example say the president invokes the Pence rule, right? And you're saying like I can't do a one-on-one with Angela Merkel 
because I'm so uncomfortable or, you know, like scared of Angela Merkel or turned on by Angela Merkel, you know, like not be able to control myself. Like at a certain point, doesn't, doesn't that say more about the person invoking the rule? And again, I think it's, these things are highly, highly contextual, right? Like different, different situations require different, you know, sort of reactions. Um, Cause my law firm, when I, like I said, was starting out, they had pool parties. And, you know, I remember a uh, older plus size partner who was a female came to me. She's like, Alexis, how can you even show your face? And I was like, dude, I have a really nice ensemble. I had like a caftan that like matched. I looked fabulous. Right. And it's like, yes, this is me, professional lawyer at a pool party. Because I think that's the other thing. Like you have such diverse people and like who 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 dictates the dress code who dictates what happens so getting back to the firm um a couple of years there was the battle of the penny hose that the female partners like quashed and then in the summer of i guess this was 2001 2002 mules were really big and one of the partners said that he hated the flopping of the mule's shoe and found that very unprofessional and one of the female partners was basically like, you know what? You're an 80 year old man. Stop it. In a way that I think, you know, the culture of firms. Did he have the same uh, uptightness around like dress shoes that clack? Probably not. I mean, again, I don't think I ever heard anything with regard to male looks. And there's... um a lot of scholarship around presentations of female attorneys in that male attorneys have a really wide range of presentations. Like you can look like Columbo and rumpled and like still be considered an effective lawyer. You can look really slick and there's like a range, but with women, it's just much narrower where, you know, are you too sexy? Are you too conservative? Are you, you know, you're, you know, is it unprofessional or professional? And, you know, my kind of definition now is if you're a professional, like if you're a member of the bar, whatever you wear by definition isn't professional. Like I hate men with long ponytails, but it's like, look, if you, and again, that's my own personal aesthetic. <laughs> We're getting into Alexis. It's like sidebar for Alexis's judgment. Yes. Sidebar. I just, I think men with <laughs> pony, and again, I should qualify. In the legal context, like when you walk into a courtroom, I just feel like it looks really unprofessional. But at a certain point, like who am I to say if you're a lawyer and a professional and that's the way you want to wear your hair, you know. I think that like it's kind of hard to kind of argue the contrapositive right here. Like what if there was a female dominated law firm and they went to male strip club? Like these are like interesting thought experiments but I don't think that's the world we like live in. And I don't know how useful that is to like trying to figure out like a solution for where we are now, because I think that those kind of, I think that line kind of is very quickly like used in support of things like the Pence rule that make it hard for women in the workplace. Like we're talking about and support harmful stereotypes and ideas about men not being able to control themselves and like women being liars so that like i so that <laughs> is that what you were thinking or what you just look like you want to say something no i'm usually the one that loses the thread so i was just excited that you did too <laughs> That's what that we'll, we'll edit was. it to make me sound smarter. I'm so, and I'm sorry, guys. I feel like I haven't stayed on top. No, no, so. no. It's fine. It's interesting to see where this goes. Um, but we're talking about gendered rules at work. It's all on topic. No, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And I, th I think it's hard. And I think it, it varies by... What I was going to say about that episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, where they had to go in and like they were... It was like a hotel. Do you remember this? And there was a swim-up bar. I know you both of you have seen the show. And, the, and it was the episode where I think her name was Cornelia. She was the attorney subbing in for Rebecca when she quit. And they had to see if you could see like a nuisance or something from the swim up bar. So she says to Nathaniel, I'll go to the hotel gift shop and I'll get a swimsuit and I'll go in the pool myself. 
and she was like a plus size woman, like maybe size 16, 18. And she had, there was like a perfectly well-fitting swimsuit that she got. And, she, and I was like, I don't believe that a hotel gift shop had a swimsuit that fit her. But that was like my whole It's thing. a TV show. But she, Go with it. I know. And it was very flattering. But then the entire law firm was in the pool and it was weird. And it just made me think of, of your anecdote. But Right. Because I think it's like one of those things like, you know, it's weird. Like it's weird it's, in terms of the culture of the firm. It was like kind of weird to have this pool party. To me. I think that, um, you know, what was it? Billy Graham and Mike Pence both have rules about, like, alcohol and the opposite sex and stuff like that. And I think just in experiences that I've had in the workplace, it's almost like a test. Like, can you be around alcohol and still act in a professional way? Or will you choose to abstain or will you, like, act ridiculously? And... I don't know if that's necessarily a right way to look at it, but I've almost kind of feel like sometimes there's events and it's like alcohol is freely available. I feel like it's almost kind of a dare to see like what's going to happen. But also I think in those contexts, men are, are able to get away with a much higher level of drunkenness without judgment or repercussion than women. Probably, yes. Right? Right. There's something that came up for me while you were talking about the gendered dress codes if there's no rule that men have to wear pantyhose, if a man comes to work wearing a skirt, he doesn't need to wear pantyhose with it because there's no rule about men who need pantyhose. You know, it's very interesting the way the way that I view it because so much of this is so cis-heteronormative and I try not to keep bringing it back there because... This is about a cis-heteronormative dynamic because of the evangelical place it comes from, because of the misogynistic place it comes from, because of the cis-centric place it comes from, because of the homophobic place it comes from, because of the queerphobic place it comes from, you know, from this really big, you know, quote-unquote traditional status quo value set that, you know, we're talking about this on this one level. But the second you add any kind of queerness to it, the whole thing just completely mm. crumbles. You know, you can really only make the Pence rule work if queer people don't exist. Right. Which is another win. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> For well, Pence. and also I think the other thing about some of this stuff, too, is people are starting to say the quiet parts out loud in that, like, I, w I worked at, at a lot of firms where... I think the sense was that the best thing that could happen to the the young female attorneys were was to marry a partner and stop working and have babies. You know what I mean? Like that was that was like the purpose of the, of the you know of the female associates, right? And um, I remember when I was in undergrad. Uh, one of the law students like wrote this whole thing about how her law degree to her was basically a marriage credential, which <laughs> I found horrifying back then, right? Like there's easier ways to get married, I guess. Um, but, you know, Karen, to your point, I think that's right, right? Like the idea that you, you have this world where or maybe maybe it is one of those things where it is Pence, right? Goes back to your original question, right? That like Pence doesn't have to be worried about queer men because he won't he won't pounce on queer men. Or he doesn't believe that queer men are real. He believes that they are misguided sinners who just need to find Jesus. So he doesn't have to worry about them. You know, if I were a man, I would really want to take a meeting with Pence and then like just like, like just like jump his bones, like just like leap across the dining room table and just like kiss him real the hard. The Secret Service would shoot you. <laughs> yeah, I I would never want to be in a room with Mike Pence, no matter what my gender was. But uh, but you know, it's interesting to me because even with like. So obviously, I feel like gendered dress codes must be in some kind of Title IX violation. I think in New York City, they are. 
not allowing women to explicitly not allowing women to attend certain networking events or certain professional events and making them men only must violate some kind of Title IX rule. But in terms of the subtler things, like one-on-one personal dinners and whether they're seen as dating or going to the strip club or having a pool party, you know, for me, I don't mind the idea that there are some law firms where that's their culture. My problem comes in where these are the dominant culture and more law firms than not have this, you know? If it was your smattering of like, well, this law firm hosts a barbecue in a park every year, and then this one goes to the strip club every year, you know, and if you're down with the strip club, like, you can be a heterosexual woman who loves to go to the strip club. There's all kinds of people, I'm sure there are gay men who like going to strip clubs with female strippers, you know, I feel like every stripper I've ever met is some kind of queer, like, queer people are very well represented in that community, and very welcomed in those spaces by the staff, you know? So I could see queer people being into that too. But not all queer people, not all women. And so if there's, if not being comfortable going to a strip club is limiting where you can apply to work to the extent where 50% of law firms have strip club events, or whatever percentage it is, you know, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not giving a number where my cutoff is. For me, the issue is, if choosing not to be in this kind of environment means that your career is limited severely, then that's the issue for me. I don't think everyone needs to stop going to the strip club, but I do think everybody needs to ask themselves, why do all these law firms go to strip clubs? And why do we do it on company dollars? But I think there's also a power dynamic, right? Because I have in situations where I've been in groups, like the group where they did go to the strip club, I pulled the guys. And I would say more than 75% of the guys did not like going to the strip club. But the lead guy of the group, like sort of the alpha partner of the group, liked going to the strip club. So it's like, this is the thing of like who sets the culture and who goes along with it. And like, it's not just limited to strip clubs. Like one of my favorites is the all time stupidest sport of golf. Do you know how many lawyers were told you need to learn how to play golf for career opportunities? Because again, who are the clients that you need to go after the rich white men what do rich white men do they play golf so it's like this idea that like power is sort of recapitulated and like everyone's playing golf and nobody even likes it in a way that like why can't like john madden football video games be like the thing which you bond over right and i think that in my career i try to find whatever that in is with whoever I'm looking to connect with, either as a client or as a networker, it's like, you know, some sort of common experience. Oh, we all like Marvel movies, or we all lived in Chicago for a period of time, or, you know, we're Greek, you know, whatever it is to have that sort of commonality of feeling like here's something that we connect on that we can branch out. And I think that's also about seeing people in their individual fullness, right? Not just a woman or, you know, um, a trans man or whatever it is. I did want to say, Karen, going back to your point, um, in New York City, Human Rights Court has ruled that um, an employer cannot impose a different dress code based on sex or gender. I knew it. (laughs) But that's not the whole country. But that is New York City. Yeah, there was a, there was a, I think it was based on a lawsuit by a non-binary waitstaff at a restaurant about, about the dress code. And then I think they said, like, you can have a dress code, but it has to be the same dress code for everybody. Like, and the dress code could say things like, if you wear a skirt, you must wear pantyhose. But like, it would have to be the same for everyone. Like, not just 
whatever. I'm really glad I don't have to wear a tie like back in the 80s. There was that 80s fashion trend that tried to like put like ties around women in like little like bow, like blousey women ties. I'm very, I'm very glad that my career. It's very uncomfortable. I tried that one time. I had to do that yeah, for Sea Rangers. I'm very, I'm very glad I don't have to do that. Or there isn't pressure, societal pressure for me to do that, I should say. Also, to your point about leadership and power and structure in recreating the culture of whoever's on top, and then even once the guard changes, that culture gets recreated because that's what their picture of a person in charge does. While I was looking into this, I did a quick, like a really quick lit review on, well, what does prevent sexual harassment? You know? If we're going to talk about how bad this rule is, maybe we should offer an alternative. And while I could not find zero, any, not a zilch research on the effectiveness of interventions for workplace sexual harassment, I did find one meta-analysis on workplace bullying. Again, there was nothing about interventions, but the two leadership styles that were associated with more bullying in the workplace were either authoritarian or laissez-faire leadership styles. So totally hands-off or totally top-down, whereas more democratic. And this was also one of the limitations of the study is that it's a weird sample, Western educated. I forget what the I stands for or the R and democratic, whatever. But it was all Western European countries that this research had pulled from, or predominantly, not entirely. So that's the environment we're talking about anyway, so it's a good fit for us here at least. Mm -hmm. So leadership styles that were supportive, authentic, transformational, and fair protect an organization against endemic bullying. So one of the things that was related to this was and I'm not making this up, but the role of capital and labor conflicts, so and capitalism in particular. It always comes back to capitalism. Not surprised. I think I said in our last episode as well, it was capitalism all along, is a line that Sarah Marshall of You're Wrong About repeats, and I'm stealing because it's correct. <laughs> but uh If people need to work to meet their basic needs and have limited mobility or options in their choice of where to work or how to work, then they will have to tolerate bad behavior. If there are no consequences for bad behavior, people who behave badly will be emboldened to do so. And it makes sense to me that these things go together. I thought that was really insightful. And I'm glad that this research was done. But I don't think that people like Mike Pence are going to listen to that because that kind of you know, the whole idea of this kind of like Christian theocracy, misogynist policy is the exact opposite of that kind of work environment that's that's more fair and equal to everyone. Right. And so one of the things that was really interesting also about this research is that it's assumed to be a bi-directional association between kind of like shitty work structures. So like high pressure monotonous tasks, high stress, and workplace bullying go together. So like the shittier your job is, the more likely you are to either bully or be bullied, or at least the more likely your workplace is to involve bullying in some way. And potentially also the more bullying is endemic to your work culture, the more garbage the task management will be and stressful the work will be. So there's a whole lot of stuff that went on in this article. They looked at so many things. It's a meta-analysis, so it's a lot. And a lot of the research was low quality, so this is still a great area to research if you're interested in researching workplace harassment and bullying. We have tons of meta-analyses, meta-syntheses on the prevalence. We know it's out there, We need research on how to effectively prevent it. Also, like, what are characteristics to prevent it from coming up without a direct intervention onto sexual harassment? Well, I think also, from my experience, um, and I have worked for some notorious bullies, and uh, 
you know, in before I started in law, I worked in the film industry and I worked for both Scott Rudin and Harvey Weinstein. So, you know, I've seen <laughs> I've seen those workplaces firsthand. And I really do think that this very colonialist hierarchical structure is one of the ways that that stuff gets recreated because if you have a democratic structure with multiple layers of accountability you're accountable to your partners as well um i think that it kind of can keep the behaviors in check right when you think about like what's inappropriate if you've ever had colleagues in an inappropriate relationship you know for whatever reason there might be, you know, sort of red signs and signals and ways to check in prior to things escalating to an uncomfortable place. Like, again, very early in my career, I remember being very jealous of a colleague because she had a mentor. And, you know, she had this mentor who was giving her a lot of professional opportunities and really took her under his wing. And when they started their professional relationship, they were both happily married to other people. Within three years, their marriages had fallen apart and they had both left the firm and there were some um, eruptions of major substance abuse issues. Um, Because what it was is it really wasn't a healthy mentor-mentee relationship. It was an affair that like blew up into other things. So here I was looking at it, thinking that it was like this professional thing where there was a lot of different layers to it and sort of thinking about what is contributing to those sorts of relationships and like when those things cross the line and why are they crossing the line like what's happening because in the context and I've had some training in the context of my faith community that when it comes to like clergy uh, misconduct there's often like multiple layers of issues so you know, and again, I'm not, you know, I, I, you know, Karen is audibly rolling her eyes. Um, No, no, quite the opposite. (laughs) But like like what I was going to say is I had a sexual harassment and sort of sexual misconduct training, which was really great because it's like, look, a priest who's married, who has an affair with a parishioner is not necessarily the same problem as a teenage predator who is sticking his hand up the skirt the skirts of all the little girls like those are different problems and have different origins and there's different warning signs and like like sort of like how do you how do you create a community where everybody is watching out for those sorts of things and like how do you create environments of safety where if someone is inappropriate, it's not just like one individual, it's not on like one individual, it's on the community, it's on the workplace, it's on everybody to, you know, sort of be accountable and intervene. And so this brings me back to Mike Pence took one out of four rules from Billy Graham about having dinner with women. But there were three other rules from that same meeting. And when I wrote this in my notes, I wrote, I wrote extreme irony warning. So one of them is don't take money without accountability. It came up because the pastors or the professional religious men, I don't know what they're called in evangelicalism, were being handed cash at dinner. And so one of the rules was not to take money without accountability. Uh, One of the other rules was only cooperate with other the way I wrote this in my notes was only cooperate with other cooperative churches who don't talk shit about each other and try to get accurate counts of people at events. So we can see why Mike Pence only follows one of these rules, (laughs) considering (laughs) money without accountability, people who don't talk shit, and trying to get accurate counts of how many people showed up to your event. (laughs) That's... That's pretty insightful and funny, though. As you were saying about the the systemic issues that come up when you see people with power who have been found committing a bad act, there's often other things that go with it. Mm-hmm. It's It's not something that happens in isolation. And so on that kind of full circle route, 
uh, we've been talking for quite some time. And even though I could continue chatting about all of the nuances, even though I think the answer of like, does the Pence rule suck is a very clear yes. I think going into the nuance of why is so fascinating. And it's been so fascinating to do that with you, Alexis. Thank oh, yeah, you so no, much. This has been great. Thank you so much. I like that joining a union is one of the answers, though. Unionize your workplace. Yes, create a more democratic workplace via unions. Is there anything more you'd like to add? No, I just I just want to thank you guys so much for creating this platform in this space. This has been uh, so interesting, and and you know you guys do such great work. So thank you. Okay, I do want to um, suggest that people watch someone else's TikTok. Um, there's like a really funny TikTok by a comedian uh, named Teresa Lee. Uh, her her TikTok screen name is at Teresa Lee Bot. And it's it's called like why your boyfriend should have hot, confident female friends. And it was just like they give better advice than if he's hanging out with guys and playing fantasy football. And I think that's kind of gendered and gender essentialist. But I also think that there's um, I think there's something to be said for that because I have a lot of men friends and Adam has a lot of women friends. And I think it does. It's good to have uh, diverse perspectives on, on your life from different kinds of people. So. I would uh, I would co-sign that. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen. Oh, me? It's just Acerdarachus. So very, very, very easy to find me if you can spell my last name. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, where we tackle political arubarus from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you'd like to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour because like icon Shirley Chisholm, we remain unbought and unbossed. You can support us non-financially by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or sharing about us on social media so that other people can find us. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth.